As far as charismatic megafauna go, you'd be hard-pressed to find a more endearing species than today's wildlife sponsor, the North American river otter. One of the latest reintroductions of river otters occurred in northern New Mexico with the help of Amigos Bravos and our guest, Rachel Kahn. Watch the video in extra credit at rewilding.org pod episode 114 to see and hear river otters doing their thing and just try not to fall in love. Stay tuned to learn more about rewatering, re-ottering, and rewilding the headwaters of New Mexico in today's episode, sponsored by Biohabitats. You're listening to the Rewilding Earth Podcast. As Deputy Director of Amigos Bravos, Rachel Kahn advocates for strong and environmentally just local, state, and federal water policy. She provides hands-on support in New Mexico to communities and groups working to protect their watersheds. Rachel is a leader in the ongoing campaigns to hold Los Alamos National Lab accountable for pollution, designate more of New Mexico's waters as outstanding national resource waters, protect New Mexico's ground and surface water from degradation caused by mining, and advocate for stronger water quality standards throughout New Mexico. So Amigos Bravos is a statewide water conservation organization based in New Mexico. We've been working to protect and restore the waters of New Mexico for over 35 years. We're really organized around this core vision that our founders brought with them when they founded our organization. And that's a vision of New Mexico's rivers and streams running so clear and clean that you can bend a knee to the water, cup your hands, and drink without fear. So that's really the founding vision of our organization and all of our work is working towards that vision and goal. We have three program areas. We have a restoring watershed health program area. We do watershed restoration. We do some river otter reintroduction work. And then within that restoring watershed health, we also have a whole policy arm of our work where we're working on clean water policy, both at the state, federal, and local levels. So that's the first program area of the three. The second is holding polluters accountable. And that area of our work focuses on tracking discharges to our waterways, tracking pollution sources, whether it be from industrial activities. We have, our, our organization really was founded around addressing the mining impacts to one stream in the upper Rio Grande watershed. And that was the, at the very beginning of our work and we've expanded to be statewide. So really tracking pollution sources across the state. And then our third area of work is building a water protection movement for the future. And that's where we work with young people, we work with local communities and, and smaller watershed focused groups to try to bring capacity and technical expertise where we can to help people protect, to build the skills to protect their watersheds, their own watersheds. Do you know when the last time was a person in the lower 48 could bend the knee and drink directly out of a river or stream without fear? Yeah, 
It's funny, just the uh, just yesterday, I was watching a movie with my kids, and it, this was based in Australia, but the there was a scene where there were these two old farmers, and, and they're out on the range, basically, and they come to a pond, and they reach down, and they fill up a bottle, an empty bottle they have, and uh, fill it with water and drink directly from it. And I was really surprised by my kids' reaction, because their reaction was like, oh my God! That's so gross. They're gonna, they're gonna be puking. They're gonna, they're gonna be so sick. And and I think that says a lot about where we are in water quality uh, these days in this country. And that my kids couldn't even imagine that being safe. Yeah, I do think that there are places where it is safe, but there are few and far between. And that's our goal is to make more places safer for us to be able to drink and swim and recreate in our waterways. There was a time before where nobody worried about it and didn't have to. And then there was the time after, and we've all lived our entire lives in that world. And so it seems like maybe the baseline keeps moving when people can't remember now, can't remember a time in their area, if it's not one of those few places left that you can drink, um, that it ever was possible. And does that affect policy? And also, does that affect conservation? Like how we conservationists try to deal with policy? Does it move the goalposts for us just because we don't have that experience in a lot of places? Yeah, I think you can think about it in a couple of ways that, yes, I think it definitely influences policy. I do think that in a lot of places, uh, we have actually are have better water quality than we did, say, in the 70s. Yeah. So in the 1970s, that's when the Clean Water Act was passed. And that is, that's a basis of a lot of our policy work is based in the Federal Clean Water Act and the tools that it provides to both states as well as citizens. There's citizen suit provisions in that law that help citizens advocate and where appropriate, there's, there can be uh, citizen suit uh, provisions. There can be uh, lawsuits to advocate for clean water. The reason it was passed and it was bipartisan and it was signed by uh, President Nixon. And so it really was Republicans and Democrats coming together in this kind of watershed, excuse the pun, piece of legislation. And and that was because the our waterways back then were literally on fire. So we had rivers that were so polluted with petrochemicals and, and, and all sorts of pollution that you would drop a match onto the surface of the water and it would catch on fire. And that's a big visual and helped propel the, the passage of that federal legislation, which has really led to cleaning up a lot of waterways across the country. Unfortunately, those protections have now been drastically weakened by Supreme Court decisions. So we're now looking at, are we going to go back to a period of time where our waters are again on fire? And I hope not. And I hope that we can continue to make progress in cleaning up our waterways so that we can get back to a time where we can cup, bend our knee and cup our hands and drink without fear. Tell me about your work in uh, northern New Mexico. Let's start at your headwaters in the state and tell us about the work that's going on there. Great. Yes. First, I'd actually like to talk a little bit about headwaters in, in general. I've done some thinking about what that means and the importance of headwaters and even gone and looked up at the definition of what headwaters is in the dictionary. And it's the source of a stream, usually used in plural. 
And then I've gone and looked at the definition of source and you find listed the definition as being a generative force, one that initiates and a point of origin. And I love those, I love those words, generative force, point of origin, and one that initiates. I also like that it that the little note in there on headwaters has it said the source of a stream usually used in plural because I think as in most things important rivers and communities they support are all about relationships that's all about us as coming together in plural as communities it's headwaters are about many streams coming together to make a rich and vibrant whole so thinking about our headwaters both as streams coming together, but also about people coming together to protect these headwaters. I also pulled out one of my favorite quotes about headwaters or going upstream from Mary Oliver, one of my favorite poets. And she talks about the power of headwaters in this quote. She says, I walked all one spring day upstream, sometimes in the midst of ripples, sometimes along the shore, my heart opened and opened again. The water pushed against my effort, then its glassy permission to step ahead touched my ankles, the sense of going toward the source. And so I, I think that's a real powerful image and it's a powerful way to bring people together to work to protect the very sources of these watersheds that flow down and connect us all. And you started your question with asking about the weekends or the volunteer work weekends. And I, I mentioned to you that we are coming off of a weekend where we had over 40 volunteers in the headwaters of the upper Rio Grande working on one of our wetland jewels. And we've identified numerous wetland jewels across the state and mostly in our headwaters. And they are our systems of wetlands that in a discrete geographic area, so they're clusters of wetlands that serve high priority functions to help provide resilience in the face of climate change. They're, they're, they provide an, a critical both ecological role, but also a role um, to downstream communities. They, they provide stream flow maintenance, carbon sequestration, flood control, habitat for wildlife. They're also essential for, for forage for both livestock and wildlife. These headwater wetland systems, these wetland jewels, we call them, these high priority wetland systems are, they're like sponges. They soak up spring runoff. So here in the mountain west, a lot of our water source comes from the snowpack in the, in the mountains. And, and then in the spring, it all rushes off. And if you don't have healthy wetlands in your headwaters, it's going to rush off all at once and then be gone downstream. And if you, but you have, if you have healthy headwater wetlands and healthy headwater riparian and watershed areas, you, you're able, they're like sponges and they can soak up that spring runoff and then slowly, they're slowly release it over the growing season. It's, they're like nature's reservoirs. Um, and what's happened is that a lot of these wetland systems have become degraded and that impacts our, our wildlife, our ecological systems and our downstream human communities that are dependent on flow in our rivers for agriculture, for drinking, for recreation. Starting up at the source, 
up at the headwaters. So pointing our feet upwards, upstream, as Mary Oliver says, and going towards the source um, to work together to restore these areas is, is, is part of the work at, of Amigos Bravos. We work with contractors and we work with volunteers doing hand-built structures. And, and these are erosion control structures. So we get up there into the headwaters and camp at over 10,000 feet, at least this past weekend, that's where the site was and and get up and after gathering together we get up in the morning and we work all day building erosion control structures that are aimed at reconnecting the what has become a channel a channelized system which is draining the wetlands so we're working to build up the channel and reconnect the water uh, to the floodplain to re-wet those wetland systems and to, to restore those wetland systems to increase and restore their capacity, their sponge-like capacity to, to function in all the critical roles that wetlands provide in our watersheds. But yes, that's a big component of our work is our wetland jewels program. We have identified them. We have story maps that can be found on our website identifying wetland jewels in different areas of the state. Biohabitats is proud to sponsor this episode of the Rewilding Earth podcast during the UN Decade on Ecosystem Restoration. And always, Biohabitats applies the science of ecology to restore degraded ecosystems, conserve habitat, and regenerate the natural systems that sustain all life on Earth. Ecological restoration is positive action that you can take and support today. It's also incredibly rewarding and a lot of fun. Learn how you can get involved in the UN Decade on Ecosystem Restoration by exploring the links and extra credit at rewilding.org pod. So you guys must be just buried under a mountain of cash from all of the grateful downstream users in New Mexico who benefit from your work. I wouldn't say that. <laughs> But it is ironic that there's somebody up there just working their butts off to do the work that you do, and it benefits everyone downstream, and nobody probably, like a lot of people, don't even know that it's happening or how much of an effect that your work has on people downstream. I just think it's crazy that everybody's not writing you guys a check. Yes. And let's get that word out. So that <laughs> I think everybody heard me. I think it's crazy that not everybody downstream is and upstream and everywhere else is not writing Amigos Bravos checks. So get that done today. Thank you very much. Yes, we're done. The work here is done. Yep. <laughs> I used to live in Albuquerque. When, when you drive up the Rio Grande or ride a motorcycle up the Rio Grande south of Albuquerque and you just smell the water. And if you have been way out in the drier parts of the state and you're just coming in and you haven't been around water for a while, you are so keenly aware that the river's there even when you can't see it. Then you can smell the water. I just love being in the desert for so long that when I my senses get tuned. It's interesting here in, in the arid Southwest that we have so little water but it becomes, it, it, it's such a large part of our life <laughs> yeah. is the attention to of where water is and where it isn't. You look across the landscape in New Mexico and you can really see where the water is because they're green ribbons. You have the dry grasslands where high desert ecosystem here. And then you have these little ribbons of green that connect 
the state, <laughs> that flow around the state. And those, so you have the little riparian corridors where the streams flow and with their associated wetlands. And it becomes, it's such a large part of the consciousness of people who live in these communities in the arid Southwest is an awareness of water because of its scarcity, ironically. You said you, you lived in Albuquerque. We actually have good showing of Albuquerque folks that show up to the, the restoration projects. We partner with another group called the Albuquerque Wildlife Federation. And sometimes we get more volunteers from down south than we do in local Taos County area where we're located and where the project's located. I think because folks are wanting to escape to the wet and the cool of the high mountains and folks who live here and locally, they're more immersed in it already. And they don't have as much of an incentive to come up and join us for the weekend. But we do get a great showing of support in terms of where our volunteers are from the Albuquerque area. And so that's always greatly appreciated. I've been meeting more and more people than I ever thought I would who are largely interested in springs. I met Larry Stevens in Arizona in the northern part of the Mogollon Rim, who was telling us and taking us to springs that you would never, ever find. You would just never find them. <laughs> They're not uh, features. There's no roads leading to the best ones anyway. And then uh, I talked to Aaron English and some others, and I'm just meeting a lot more people who are really interested in springs. And I'm learning, of course, a lot more than I ever thought I would too. How much of that plays a part, I'm sure it does, in your work? There definitely, when we talk about wetland jewels, a lot of the wetland jewels that we've identified are there, are spring-fed. And the work that we were doing this past weekend, we, we have these green wet meadows. So wetlands in New Mexico are not what folks on the coasts think of wetlands with like cattails and standing water. We have a lot of wet meadows is the main kind of wetlands we have in our mountains, which are when they're really healthy, you can get fen-like systems of, of, when you look at it, it looks like a patch of, of green, really super green grass. But when you step on it, it's disorienting because they're floating and you don't see any standing water. But if you jump on the grass, it's like a ripple. And someone who's standing even five feet away can then get the little ripple and they'll bounce up and down. So they're these bouncing wetlands. Huh. Um, and a lot of those are spring fed. And, and so protecting our springs from impacts is critically important to the work of protecting our headwaters and our watersheds. It seems like springs to me feel like churches for water. Like that's super source, like that's sourced in all caps, right? Yes, exactly. I like that. You can use it. Okay, critters. How are we working with critters in the North or anywhere in the state? Particularly, I know you're involved with river otter reintroductions and, and beavers have to play some part in all this, right? Yes. And so beavers, as I don't have to tell you, I don't think, since it's probably preaching to the choir here, right? About how critically important beavers are to our landscapes and how they have created a lot of the, the rich agricultural systems we depend on that have often been created by beavers creating their dams and capturing nutrient-rich uh, sediment that creates very productive soils. And beavers are, are the architects of a lot of our watersheds. And unfortunately, a lot of the of our the beavers 
across the whole country, including here in New Mexico, have been hunted and trapped and, and their habitat destroyed. We as humans like to build on the floodplains, which make it un which makes it hard for beavers to come back and build their dams and re-wet areas. If there's houses there, there's there's a lot of people who don't want to see that happen, right? They don't want their houses to be flood, so flooded, so they'll trap or, or kill the beavers to get them out of the system to stop that from happening. A lot of our work that we do in, in partner groups, there's partner groups that really utilize the concept of beaver dam analogs or BDAs, which is building structures that basically a, a beaver dam, but it's a human dam trying to, to serve the functions of a beaver dam. And, and we haven't engaged in, in that as much. We've focused more on, on using sod plugs and, and one rock dams, but it's a functional equivalent of, of slowing the water down, raising the water table, reconnecting the stream to the floodplain and rewetting wetlands. And so yes, beavers are, are they're much better at restoring watersheds than, than we are. It's just, unfortunately, we've created, we've killed off many of our beavers and then we've created our built environments so close to streams that it makes it hard to bring them back in many places. Um, it's a great example of another cost that's not accounted for, that you have to have organizations out doing the work of beavers, which is radically more expensive than... <laughs> having beavers. And that cost, that cost isn't really accounted for in society at all, including your headwaters work, including there are a lot of people who pull profits out of developments. And there are people who pay taxes for city services and things like that. But I doubt very much tax money goes to the kind of work that you and partner organizations do. And you have to raise money. It just doesn't seem fair that you have to work so hard just to be able to do the work and that you have to do the work in the first place. Yes, I mean it. And we don't do the work nearly as well as, as the beavers can do. And we don't even get a top quality beaver project. Yes. They're the ones who know how to do this stuff. <laughs> exactly. They're the experts. We're spending a lot of money and resources and not even doing it as well as they would do for free. <laughs> what kinds of opportunities are there for river otters or beaver or both? Are there little pockets, jewels for reintroductions? I, you touched on river otters, and that is a program that we have had active reintroduction programs here at Amigos Bravos. So that was actually one of the first projects I worked on. Um, the river otters are abundant in different places in the country, but here in New Mexico, since the 1950s, they were considered extirpated. And extirpated means locally extinct. So they were extinct in the state of New Mexico um, due to uh, overtrapping and water quality issues. And so we worked with partners and teamed up with the Department of Game and Fish and Taos Pueblo and, and other NGO partners to, to restore river otters back to the state. And that took a lot of outreach and education. It took getting our state game commission to, to vote in favor of doing that reintroduction. It, we worked with Taos Pueblo uh, uh, to, on, on native lands in the headwaters of the Rio, to a tributary to the upper Rio Grande, the Rio Pueblo de Taos is where we set up the release sites for these otters and worked with the Pueblo on, on their land was a perfect location for that reintroduction release. Um, and we're able to release 33 
river otters into the upper Rio Grande as, and there's been several additional releases since then. And we're looking to do releases in the Gila watershed as well in the Southern part of the state, but that hasn't come to fruition yet. There's a, there's some more concerns about some endangered fish species. And while all the evidence shows that when you reintroduce an apex uh, species into an environment, it helps balance it all out. There's still been some concerns with just getting the, the studies and the everything in order in line before we can release otters in the Gila. But the Upper Rio Grande watershed reintroduction project has really been a, a huge success. We have, we have otter cams. We have these cameras that we've put out on along the Upper Rio Grande and we get pictures of all sorts of wildlife, but including the, the river otters. And, and we get lots of folks calling in with reported sightings and they've spread out throughout the Upper Rio Grande and the Chama River watersheds, which is a large tributary to the Upper Rio Grande. And so they, by all accounts, are doing very well since we released them. We did the first release in 2008. It was the first release. And, and then there's been subsequent releases since then. I looked up on Google New Mexico otter cams. Because of the work that you and partner organizations did, there's a huge, rich set of search results. KRQE had a news report on it. They made money off that news report. There are a lot of people who make money. There's a, the state gets to look good. <laughs> and I don't know how hard you had to fight them at first to even get this to happen, but they're actually using this to look good now that it has. And there is always that. New Mexico River Adventures is a guide probably a guide organization. And they they have a, a thing about river otters because they know that's going to attract business. And so that's helping businesses. And it's just, I just want to point that out because I think people need to pay more attention to rewilding is good business. <laughs> and it might not always be the best business because people can also overlove a place and they can there can be overcrowding and everything else after uh, a charismatic species comes back to the land or the water. But um, Dave Foreman told us that's just something we have to manage because if people don't know a place, they don't love a place, they won't want to save a place. So we have to make people aware of these things and then just deal with the overcrowding sometimes that happens in, in the creative way that we can. But I just want to keep pointing that out because you guys do. I mean, you so directly affect so many lives of wildlife and people and business and everything else. And I don't know that you get to have that many pats on the back or conversations about that, uh, certainly not as many as you should. Well, thank you. Thank you so much for that, Jack. Yes, we do hear from folks about rafting guides in the upper Rio Grande. They, they talk to their clients about the opportunity to see river otters. And if they're lucky, they will. And maybe they'll get a better tip <laughs> if they do. And so... Uh, there's that people get so excited when they see a river otter. We get all sorts of reports back from folks. And it's actually one of the reasons we we wanted to focus on this river otter reintroduction program because it's also an education tool. River otters are so charismatic. They're great ambassadors for watershed protection. The, the, everyone, you see an otter playing and you just can't help but smile. They're so charismatic and 
funny and cute. And so they are a great education tool for reaching out to both kids and adults alike to raise awareness about our watersheds and to generate excitement and care for the species that depend on clean water. And also river otters are very sensitive to pollution. And so they're a good indicator species for whether a, a system is healthy. We do have on our, when you said you looked up river otter cam, if you look up in river otter cam in New Mexico or river otter reintroduction in New Mexico, you should find our website and we do have, yep, we have there a it is. map of some of the sightings. And then there's, there's some of the pictures of both river otters and bighorn sheep and all sorts of different critters that we have, we have found in the upper Rio Grande. So there's lots of slideshows you can click through to see the different species that we've, that we've captured, not physically captured, but captured their image with these motion activated cameras we have along the river. The best way to capture them. Yes, and, exactly. And I don't know. I want to put this out there. I think the best scientific way of looking at river otters is charismatic mega slinkies. <laughs> yes, there you I'm go. going to put that out there. Maybe you can help me make that a thing because I just really feel that's the best way. Everybody knows what you're talking about immediately, I think. Yes. Maybe <laughs> that should be like a little toy that you make, an actual little Ooh. otter slinky. <laughs> what are you seeing now that you didn't see 23 years ago that has popped up and has given opportunities for people who really care about this stuff to actually make a living doing it or have a lot more volunteer opportunities doing it. Yeah, I think that there's been, there certainly is with some of the federal funding dollars, really increased opportunities and capacity for restoration. So for on the ground restoration work here in New Mexico, we're often limited by, there's only a handful of contractors who do the work of some of the large scale river restoration projects and wetland restoration projects. And, and they're book solid with their work. And so I think there's a real opportunity for to develop more businesses and companies focused on providing those services, those restoration services, working with groups like Amigos Bravos and other Trout Unlimited does a lot of this work here in the state. There's numerous groups that do on-the-ground restoration, but that we're often limited by there, there aren't as many contractors to implement some of at least the larger scale work that you can't get done with just volunteer hand-built structures. So you I all think work with uh, biohabitats too, right? Yes, we work with biohabitats on, they've helped us. Some of our work isn't, it, it, all of our work isn't always up in the headwaters in the mountains. We also work on green infrastructure and making our built environments uh, better and more sustainable in terms of the runoff that comes, that flows off of our built environments once it rains or when the snow melts, often picks up a lot of pollution. And there's ways um, that you can implement green strategies in your built environments, in our built environments, in our cities and towns to capture stormwater runoff and filter out the pollutants and recharge our, our aquifers and our watersheds. And so we've worked a lot with biohabitats to, to identify some of those green infrastructure opportunities, both in terms of our towns and our communities, but also working with some of the larger polluters in the state to identify ways we can implement these green practices 
to, to capture polluted water before it impacts downstream communities and use green infrastructure techniques to do so. You get, you're not just stopping the pollution from reaching downstream, you're creating vibrant systems on site that provide their own functions and benefits to the ecosystem. I think that there's a lot of opportunities going into the future for green infrastructure and, and really our natural infrastructure, which encompasses both green infrastructure and kind of the work that I was talking about earlier with watershed restoration. That's increasing our natural infrastructure. It's helping restore the natural infrastructure in our watersheds. So I think there's a lot of exciting opportunities for that work and lots of opportunities for growth of that a sector of business. I really love that example because we haven't had, a, we've been talking in isolation of where everybody works and there's been a lot of urban and built environment stuff. And I'm like, where's this intersection going to happen? Because you also, just exactly how you just described it, you really all need to be working together and you're providing evidence that is happening. And I think also that part is going to grow in the future, don't you? Yeah. And so we're working to try to make that. So with both doing it and working with partners on the ground, but also incorporating green infrastructure and natural infrastructure prioritization in some of our planning, our water planning documents, both at the local and state levels. So we recently here in New Mexico had a a water task force that was put together um, by the governor's state engineer, put together this task force to identify ways we have, we as a state can be more resilient in our with water going forward into the future. And one of the roles that we saw was to incorporate some of these concepts and prioritize green infrastructure and natural infrastructure as a way that we as a state can can respond to the impacts of climate change and the the impacts of the the human of humans on our watersheds, both through climate change but also through land use and um, a lot of the erosion that he, when we, we work with many partners across the state, including biohabitats in, in that work. As you're talking, I'm looking at another example of it, and it's that Dagon River Otter page that you have on amigosbravos.com.org. And I think it's really amazing. It's one little green dot that was the release site, and then the evidence and sighting dots go so far from where the release took place. <laughs> and I'm yeah. like, wow, that's so powerful. I, I picture the same kinds of things with beavers. But the, I was. it says release sites, and there's only one dot on the map, and all the other dots are the dispersal. And it, it could be the same family in a bunch of cases, I'm sure, but it's just amazing when we're allowed to do what we know needs to be done, what can happen with so little effort when we just let nature have its way. Yeah. We hope to have more green dots on there at some point. I mentioned we're trying to make it happen in the Gila. So hopefully there'll be more green dots on that map at some point. But yes, it's amazing. You, It really is. Nature knows how to do it best, right? Like we were talking earlier about beavers. We're trying to do what, as humans, trying to to recreate what beavers have done for millennium, millennium uh, on the landscape. But they're the experts and the river otters here, you can see they're the experts at 
spreading out in a watershed and creating families all over northern New Mexico from one little green release dot spot site in yeah. Taos County. Yeah. I think what's different is that so many people are watching the fact that there is an, a thing called an otter cam that never existed before. And a lot of the a lot of the extirpations took place when nobody was watching, when there was no way that anybody could really know about it until it was too late. And people just out on the land were just doing their thing. And there wasn't a lot of reporting of anything. There weren't any regulations. We live in a different world now where I can go check on my otters. I've heard people say that about their eagle cams. Those are my mm -hmm. eagles. My otters, how are my otters doing? And now they've spread all over this place and everybody's watching. So any kind of weird thing that gets proposed, I would imagine meets with a heck of a lot more resistance than it ever used to because of that. Yes, we can hope that that as people learn about where the, the otters are or other species or even areas on the landscape where they have special connection to, that that there'll be a lot more passion and commitment to protecting those places and those species. I mentioned in the three areas of our work is the one of those is building a river protection movement. And that goes to both working with young people and working with local communities, but to create that connection to the landscape. And maybe this is a perfect time. I actually have another quote from my favorite poet, Mary Oliver, about this. Absolutely. Um, so this is Mary Oliver, the poet. She says, teach the children, give them the fields and the woods and the possibility of the world salvaged from the lords of profit. Stand them in the stream, head them upstream, rejoice as they learn to love this green space they live in. It's sticks and leaves, then the silent, beautiful blossoms. Attention is the beginning of devotion. And I love that because I really don't think we need to teach children so much as we need to nurture their natural capacity. And, and it's not just children, it's people's natural capacity for being connected to the world, to nurture our natural curiosity and capacity for joy. And if we do that, I think we are building advocates and people who are willing to fight to protect these special places that they're connected to and getting people aware of all these species and beautiful places that are out there that are right outside their door, that we create a movement of a river protection movement and a landscape and a species protect. Something our late friend and mentor Dave Foreman agreed with wholeheartedly and worked his whole life uh, to make people understand. And I think he did a lot and you are carrying that on. So thank you so much. And Rachel, thank you so much for taking the time to be on the Rewilding Earth podcast today. Thank you for having me. It was fun. Thanks for listening to the Rewilding Earth podcast. We do what we do because of you. This podcast is supported by listeners like you who long to live in a wilder world. Please consider donating at rewilding.org and subscribe to our weekly news and article digest while you're there. To go the extra mile, you can follow and share Rewilding Earth on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter. Bonus points for sharing this podcast with your friends. To listen to past episodes, go to rewilding.org pod. That's rewilding.org pod.